Levo to the right hand, puts her down. He's going to dump him hard to the ice. Brady Levo just loves to fight. Ladies and gentlemen. My dream of being a professional hockey player became a reality, but it was all taken away from me in a very short period of time. For many years, hockey was my outlet. Hockey was my drug. When I had a stick in my hand, nothing else mattered. I was able to break into the Western Hockey League in 2004, and I even won the Swift Current Broncos Rookie of the Year. During the summer of my rookie year, I experimented with drugs for the first time. After just seven games in my sophomore season, I walked away from the Swift Current Broncos due to personal reasons. Nobody knew I had been sexually abused at the age of five. I did everything to hide it from everybody, but I just couldn't take it. Drugs and alcohol now took over my life. I did return to the Swift Current Broncos as a 19-year-old, but things were never the same. I was eventually traded to the Kelowna Rockets in my final year of junior where I got to play on a line with the Dallas Stars captain, Jamie Benn, and one of my best friends, the extremely talented Colin Long. It was by far my best season ever, and I even signed with the Tampa Bay Lightning's organization. A dream come true, right? That's when everything went wrong. First it was the cocaine, then came the Oxycontin, and that led me into a 12-year journey into the deepest pits of hell. Within two years, I had now made the switch to heroin, fentanyl, and everything in between, and I was now an intravenous drug user. Multiple suicide attempts and over five trips to the psych ward, I was a shadow of who I once was. By 2014, I was homeless on Hastings in Vancouver, the worst street in North America. By 2015, I was a wanted criminal, making the Crime Stopper headlines more than once. After spending three years in jail, I had completely given up. With nowhere to turn and nowhere to go, I finally started to get honest. I took a chance and made some major changes. This is my story. I overdosed over 10 times. I'm one of the lucky ones. And for that, I will always be grateful. This is for all the men and women we've lost. Matthew Lazinski, Mitch Fadden, this one's for you. My name's Brady Liebold, and I've been to hell and back. This is the road to recovery. I'm meant to do. On your page, you what me is going on? Welcome. Sometimes I just gotta let this one play. Hockey to Hell and Back, episode number 124, coming at you live from an overcast, raining all day Muskoka, Ontario. But it's a great day to be alive, I'll tell you that. I'm one grateful human. Sometimes it hits me more than others. I wanna say thank you while I'm on that topic to the Canadian International Hockey Academy out there in Rockland, Ontario. They had me there uh, just a few days ago. Jen and I were up there and spent the day. I got to get on the ice with uh, all the different teams and then got to share my story in the afternoon. And 
just incredible people up there. All the players were great and the facility. Wow. These kids that are at these academies. I don't, I don't know if all of them really know how lucky they are. Made me want to be 15 years old again. But yeah, thank you so much for having me up there. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Good talk a little bit more about that at the end of the show. Uh, One more thing I just want to say today, May 1st, a couple things start today. I'm going to start with the million reasons run. If you've been watching or listening to this show for at least the last year, you would have heard me talk about this last May um, teaming up with a good friend of mine, Kendra Fisher, f- friend of the show. She's been on here. We do lives every Monday on Instagram at kfisher30 on Instagram if you're not following her. Um, raising money for Children's Hospital across Canada. And it's really easy to get involved. You can join our team. Uh, you can donate. You can find the links on my social media pages, hers, uh, or just simply Google Million Reasons Run. It's really easy to find. And um, you can even pick which hospital you want to run for. In my case, I'm going to be rollerblading a lot of it. And you set a goal for uh, money raised and as well kilometers on how many you're going to walk, run, rollerblade, bike, whatever it is. It's also an opportunity for all of us to get moving. It's really good for our mental health. It's for a great cause. Come join our team. Go to my profile or Kendra's. Join our team. We're even going to be meeting in Toronto somewhere on one of these days during the month of May where people can come and rollerblade with us. We're also going to set up a walk for those that can't run or rollerblade. But like I said, really great for your mental health. Get moving. So that brings me to the second thing. May 1st. It's mon- uh, Mental Health Awareness Month. And I think that's great. It's, it's incredible anytime we bring attention to mental health and we're talking about it. But I just want to remind everybody that it's not one day, it's not one month, that it's 365 days a year that we really need to be talking about this and taking care of our own mental health. So again, maybe we'll talk about that at the end of the show. But without further ado, let's get uh, to the reason why probably everyone's here Uh, watching live if you are watching thank you so much feel free to jump in at any time leave comments ask questions and if you're not watching live thank you to all those on the audio but we'll bring in reed low retired nhler st louis blue moose jaw warrior regina pat i believe now he may even be an auctioneer so let's bring him in We'll, we'll get to the bottom of all that here he is what's going on my friend not much man just uh finishing up some dinner See my son in the background doing dishes. See, good dad. Yes, <laughs> man. You might you might get the earliest. I think we just set a record on this show for the horn there. That's awesome. I love to see that. So good. He's a good kid, man. Uh, Twenty years old, and uh, I got lucky with him. That's great. Well, you must have done something right. So that's you know you maybe got a little bit of luck, but also some great parenting too. So, but yep. thanks for being here, man. I I really appreciate it. I'm like personally, I'm really excited to hear a little bit about your journey through hockey and life because I don't know a whole lot. And from my research, I mean, there's some stuff out there, but not a not a ton. I mean, you know, we we live these lives as hockey players for a short period of time, and then you know we got, we all got to get into the real world at some point. And I would love to, you know, kind of just hear about your journey through hockey. Maybe that's where we can start. You could take us back as far as you want to go and, and kind of what it, maybe what it means to you. Uh, You know, it's a typical question to ask, but it's uh, it always warms my heart when we can hear the story of, you know, when the young boy or girl falls in love with the game that uh, you know, we all love so much. 
Well, I think uh, just watching your intro there talking about wanting to play in the NHL and wanting to get somewhere, I think that most Canadian kids start with that dream, at least the ones that play hockey. And uh, I was no different. And, you know, people ask me if I knew how I felt, you know, back in those younger years from the time I was probably eight years old to 12, like, I really believe this is going to happen. I didn't really know how it was going to happen, but I had a mindset that I really wasn't going to allow anything to get in the way, which is obviously how I end up leaving being somewhat of a decent player and then moving into uh, uh, the fisticuff world that, that we're, that we're in. So um, the one, one part I always stop and, and, and give kudos to is my dad, because uh, my agent, Brad Devine, uh, Thunder Creek Sports Management of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, he's retired now. I was a second contract ever. He always told me that I had the best hockey dad ever because he just kind of stood back, chilled out, what didn't get involved. Um, I wasn't even allowed to play travel hockey until I was peewee. I played house league and novice and Adam um, and then uh, moved up through the ranks. But I played two years in the Western Hockey League, two years in the Saskatchewan Junior Hockey League, and then I had a year of PBAA. So if you count the times that I played Tier 1 hockey um, from the time I was got on skates the first time to the time I signed an NHL contract, it was only three years. And I always make sure that I talk to parents about that. It's not necessarily about how – um how what level you're playing at and like down in st louis here it's triple a craze and everybody's fighting over the hockey players since the five kids got drafted out of st louis in the first round in 2016 with matthew kachuk uh, leading leading the role at number six but you know for me it was always just a a love for the game and i just wasn't willing to do anything else and didn't want to do anything else so when i was 17 years old and my fighting started, um, I was like, okay, well, if this is how I got to get there, this is how I got to get there. So um, it was a, it was a fun road. It was a long road, a lot of blood, sweat and tears, a lot of insecurities and moments and, and fear. And um, you know, you know, from a mental health standpoint, we always talk about like from the time I was 16 to the time I was 30, I was trained to hurt people. Not only was I rewarded for it, I was famed for it and paid ridiculous amounts of money to do it. Um, but I've been in over 350 ice fights and uh, I've never been in a bar fight or street fight in my life. So I do have, I do have something to, to, to ride back on. Wow. That's, uh, that's actually really surprising to be honest, because, uh, you know, for me and I, this isn't, I wasn't expecting this to come up at all. And that's what I love about this. You know, I've been in not, I wasn't in 350 bar or uh, hockey fights. I was in quite a few, but for me, and I've talked to other guys where, I was almost just like felt like I was trained where if something happens to just react, like the gloves come off and you just go. So for me, when stuff happened in real life, like even in high school, let's say if a buddy was getting picked on, it was like it was like he was just buried from behind in, in a game. Right. And so and I've and I've heard that from other guys. So it's interesting that you were able to kind of, you know, discern that and like keep it on the ice. And, and that's often the case, too, though, is when we think of. You know, the, the big tough guys, they're usually like the nicest guys off the ice, right? Well, I, I'm i not a fighter. I, I, I tell people all the time, fighting was what I had to do to get to the NHL. And once I started to endear myself to my teammates for what I was willing to do, um, and I tell this to people all the time, if I just had to get in that, you know, tap tough guys tapping sticks going, okay, we got to go. Or if I was sticking up for a teammate, there was a different animal at each fight. I, I was pretty tough. Obviously, I made it to the NHL, 100 <laughs> NHL fights and 256 games and all the rest of it. But 
when I was sticking up for one of my teammates, you better worry because I was, I was going to hurt you. And there was a part of me where that the, the, I always talk about how I loosen the screws and um, it's crazy and, and I'm sure we'll get into it, but learning how to do that and then trying to learn how to not do that has been two things that have been instrumental here over the last couple of years of my life. When you look at how you wire yourself to do that. And then when you get out of it and it's not there, how do you wire yourself to stay calm and do some of the other things that have to come along with it? But I knew early that I was in uh, Minot, North Dakota, trying out for the Saskatchewan Junior Hockey League, American-based team. And I was listed that spring, had a good camp. And I brought a duffel bag, my sister and my buddy, Chris Burke, and uh, my mom and dad drove down to Minot, North Dakota. I made the inter-squad game. And I fought the two toughest guys in the team and, and beat the tar out of one guy and really did well against the toughest guy. And I scored four goals in the inner squad game to boot. And I'm sitting in Jim Rock's office after it. And uh, he's looking at me. He's like, wow, that was a heck of a game you had there. I'm like, thanks. You know, what am I supposed to say? He's like, do you think you could do it again? I'm like, score four goals in a game. He's like, no, beat the crap out of those guys. I said, well, does it mean I'm going to make the team? He said, yeah, yeah, if you can do that, you make this team. I said, Coach, you point them out, I'll take them out. And that's where it went. And it literally, I didn't know what I was doing. I led my team in midget double A and scoring the year before and would fight only when it was necessary. And now for the first time in my life, I was put into a position and a situation where this was going to be my predominant role as a, as a hockey player and in the game of hockey. And without even thinking, it's just immediate, I'm on, I'm in, done. Like this is next level. I made it 17 years old. Everybody told me I was never going to do nothing. Let me see what I can do. And he would literally go, I'm going to put you out against two. And in the SJ, we got booted out. Right. So my dad would drive all over Southern Saskatchewan, anywhere, Evstavan, Weyburn, Melville, Yorkton, Kindersley, all these places. And there was times where I got booted out with 10 minutes left or 10 minutes into the first period. I was sitting up in the stands with dad and we were watching hockey and hanging out. So um, the underlying aspects of just building that relationship with my dad as he traveled everywhere, you know, to watch me play in the SJHL. And then really Jim Rock was the one that showed me how to, you know, those moments when I had to go do something. And I was very, uh, you know, and I tell people all the time, you know, there was a lawsuit going around that they wanted me to get in on. And I'm like, I'd, I'd sign that. I, I, if you were to put me on a quarter law and ask me if I'd do it all again, I'd say in an absolute second, not even, not even think twice. I would absolutely do it exactly the same way I did it over again, except I might work a little harder and drink a few less beers. <laughs> it's, it's interesting that you say that, right? And it's, there's actually a lot of, uh, we're almost on the same wavelength where I'm sitting here listening of my next question and you're, following through and, and answering. And I was going to ask you, you know, kind of about that. And like, would you do it all over again? And, and I ask this to guys all the time and, and, and nobody's ever said no on this show. I, I, the only person that comes to mind that I can think of that I've seen on record really say that I wouldn't do it, do it again was Daniel Carcillo. And, you know, everybody's entitled to their own opinion. And if they, you know, if that's what they believe, that's what they believe. But there was a, a similar lawsuit, going around in this Canadian hockey league, right? The Western league and, and that, and actually uh, my captain for Kelowna when I was there, James McEwen has been on the show twice. He's actually, you know, one of the guys leading that class action lawsuit. And, you know, and I, I thought about it and I took a meeting with the lawyers just to kind of get where my, where it was at. 
And they came back to me and they, you know, they heard my story of, you know, homelessness and jail and all that. Probably like, bing, bing, bing. Like, this is, you know, this looks good for our case. All and, their signs are just going. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I thought long and hard about it. And I called my dad, who scouts in the Western League, has for a number of years. And I said, you know what, dad? Like, like I, for me, like, money is not going to change anything, right? Like, money doesn't change anything. I said, I would rather be in a position where I can use my experience to make the game better for others. And that means we have to work with these people, you know, that everyone, not these people, I shouldn't say, but people have to work together. Um, and, and that sort of was my approach. And now, you know, the other day I had, I've had meetings with the Western Hockey League about, and, and potentially here with Hockey Canada, of, you know, being a part of that solution. And it's going to take a collective you know, a bunch of people to do that. And I just, much like you, I, I would do it all over again too. And I just didn't feel right about it. Sorry, I did, again, I didn't know we were going to talk about this, but since we are, I think it's, you know, it's interesting to kind of crack it open. I, I think for me, uh, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I don't have any problem with the guys that are going and, and getting a check. You know, honestly, I could use a nice little check too. Yeah. Uh, but I just, for my own self, like that role, taught me so much from my later years in life. I, I respect what I did and, and what I accomplished and the people I've met and the teammates that I served. Um, it, my, my, my life in hockey, I, I couldn't have asked for anything more. It was what it was. Could there have been some different things? Could I have done some things differently? Yeah, sure. I guess the one thing that really disappoints me right now when it comes to, to hockey and especially what we've seen in the Quebec Major Junior League and you know what's happened in the National Hockey League with the 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 limits of fighting compared to the head issues and the cheap dirty stuff that we're seeing in hockey today and really what I would like to call the lack of respect for playership um, when I played listen I played hard against Steve Eiserman he was my idol I almost asked him for my autograph his autograph the first shift I ever had against the guy um, but I was going to play hard against him but I never ran him it was me and Bobby Probert fighting, or it was me and somebody else in the team that were fighting to do that. We signed the bottom line for that. You know, we're the first guys at the charity event. We're the last ones to leave. I, I really, I tell people this a lot that the NHL tough guy for me, and I'm not going to say that I have an, a better appreciation, but I have a different special appreciation of what the National Hockey League means and making it and having the career that I did because I would never have had it if I didn't have that enforcer role. And there's some young kid in Western Canada right now that has the ability to go in, make himself a better human, make himself a better player and protect his teammates. And he's not going to get that opportunity to do it because of what they've done with the game of hockey. And that's sad for me because um, we're going to miss that somewhere down the line when this dying breed of dinosaurs of NHL enforcers dies off. And I'm, I'm, I'm not in the last generation, but I'm in the second or third to last generation. And, um, so that's something that I always try and talk about uh, because I think it's important for us to understand that the enforcer role wasn't the barbaric role. There's guys out there, like no offense, Daniel Carcillo, that were out there running around cheap shotting guys. I was never doing that. And and uh, and there's a lot of them out there. And those guys didn't have to deal with me because of the instigator rule that was brought in in the mid or mid 1990s. And I and I played against Danny, and I know that if. Danny had uh, there wasn't an instigator rule. He might not have run around as much against the St. Louis Blues as he did when he did. So at the end of the day, all of those guys they had a role. Tyson Nash was on our team. He did the same thing. So it's not a pick on this guy, pick on that guy. There was a role established for these guys once that in instigator rule was was eliminated, and they brought in a two minute. You know, you could. I, I literally got. 17 minutes of penalties one night against Dallas and we had to kill off a five minute major and a two minute minor. And I got kicked out of the game 
And really, what did I do? Yeah, sure, I beat the crap out of Philip Boucher, but I put my team in a terrible position. And the coaching staff obviously had to recognize that. And so that's really what stopped it. And Joel Quinville used to tell me all the time, like, you got the red light. I'm like, what is the red light, Joel? Are we playing Red Rover here? Like, what if he punches Pierre Turgeon in the face? Do I still have the red light? Like, how are you, a guy that's never, ever come close to even doing this role, trying to give me an idea? Like, do you trust me to do it or do you not trust me to do it? And I think that coaches and and, and people that don't understand what it's actually like to live in that role of come in and try to uh, judge it and, and critique it and, and make us out to be the guy, bad guys when – Wayne Gretzky never had a concussion, let alone a body check. And Sidney Crosby spent two years on the IR for concussions of nine months or more. So you tell me who's got it right. Wow. I could not agree with you anymore on all of it. And it was, and again, like today, I was thinking about the cue in specific, like specifically, and what, like, they're, I it, they got it wrong, and it's the the narrative, the head injuries. It's not from fighting. Like you know, listen, can concussions happen from fighting? Sure, yeah, absolutely. But I've been in a lot of fights, and I got more concussion. I had quite a few concussions. I don't know about you, but I would say ninety percent of them came from hits that I wasn't expecting, or hitting my head off the glass. Like not from fighting. Like my gloves were on. I was in the play. And I got cheap shotted or my neck snapped back or whatever. That's it. I ran into uh, Scott Stevens one night and I felt like I'd run into a brick wall. Um, and I guarantee I was concussed that night. Um, I, I cut my lip from slamming my head into the glass. You know, George Rock used to beat me up all the time. So he probably gave me a couple of concussions. But again, those are like, no offense, NHL and Q, you, what, you, all you leagues. I wasn't asking for your protection then, and I certainly don't think anybody's asking you for your protection now. So I'm not sure why you're out there trying to be all protective because fighting isn't the problem. It never has been. In fact, fighting calm things. You used to watch when a game was four or five nothing, and the, the tension from everybody would just rise. And then two guys that signed on the dotted line that said, I'm willing to take this on for the entire team, would go out, would spar, would get it done. And then you know what would actually happen? There would typically be a good hockey game after that and a couple more goals scored and you would see better hockey with good hard hitting, lack of crap, lack of bull crap. And so for me, it's like they don't understand that. It's not what sells, which it should be because Kelly Chase said it best when he said, not only is nobody going to get a hot dog when there's a fight on, but people are leaving the hot dog stand to get back into the ring because they want to see what's going on. So you know, again, it's something that'll be a, a something that will have to make its way through. But I don't think you'll ever see fighting end at the NHL level. You'll just see more inexperienced people doing it. You won't see guys like myself and and the other tough guys that are actually training boxing in the summertime and working on our fighting skills and stuff like that. I think it'll be more of a, you know, I'm I'm a big tough guy. I can handle myself, and I have to go stick up for my teammate. Those moments will always be there. But I, for for the foreseeable future, I think you're going to see an elimination of of fighting in the game of hockey. Yeah, and it's um, I I agree, man. It's it's really unfortunate, and it does take away from the game. And to your point, it takes away, um, it takes away the dream for quite a few people, right? That like you mentioned, those young, young the young guy in Western Canada that could 
could do that and provide that for the team. And as a guy, you know, that did a little bit of that, but also played on a team where there were guys that did that. Uh, it just, it, it brings the team together too, right? When you have a, a guy like that to, and you, you can rely on it and you know, and, and much to your point back in the day, like you knew if you did something and you crossed that line, like there was like you were going to have to answer for it. And, and one of my, one of my favorite things, Al McInnes, who is without question, my absolute favorite teammate, favorite human. Um, this guy is not only one of the best hockey player defensemen, NHLers in the history of hockey. He's just an absolute superstar of a human. Um, for a guy that's that huge and he just always has time for people. I just have such a massive respect for him. He used to, my mom and dad used to walk in and he used to call him Mr. And Mrs. Lowe. Like this guy is just the the like the greatest, and he's quiet and he's shy and he's not around a lot, but he always used to say. I would rather have a cutout. So, you know, like, you know, in pro hockey or even whatever, you got your little superstar Europeans or French Canadians and they're playing on the first and second line. And whenever they're terrible, then the the tough guy gets bounced out and they get put on the fourth line, right? Well, they're not going to do anything with six minutes if they can't do it with 16 minutes, first and foremost, okay? <laughs> Trust me, it's harder to play six minutes in a night than it is to play 16 minutes. And I did both. I know this from uh, actually experience. And Al McGinnis always used to say, I'd rather have a cutout of Tony Twist on the bench than some European poor, uh, sec guy that was supposed to be on the second line playing on the fourth line. Um, so just like those guys said it all. You get Brett Hall in a, in, a, in a anywhere talking about tough guys. He'll tell you that if he didn't have Twister and Chaser and, and guys like myself, you know, they're, the game would have been different for those guys. And they have a love for us that, uh, quite frankly, for me, makes me really proud because – Al McKinnis is a superstar, and like every time he sees me, he gets, hey, Lozy, how you doing, right? And that makes me feel special because this guy's a legend, and he still, to this day, 20 years later, remembers what it was like to for me to go have to go do what I had to do to make sure those guys were safe. That's that's awesome. Thanks for sharing those uh, those stories. Like those are the ones that like you just I, I for me, man, I love to hear it. I know the people watching or listening, same, same thing. I just want to get to one. One comment here. Um, I mean, ready. It says, I'm a fighter in the sense as I protect my friends and family, but I'm, uh, I'm a bit really a scare. I'm a bit really of a scaredy cat fights with strangers. I don't like hurting people. Being an adoptee is rough. I just love hockey. Uh, I just want to give a shout out to Jackie and, uh, and David Carlson also uh, just popped in um while we're here feel free to people i know there's quite a few people watching uh, on facebook and youtube feel free to uh, ask questions or leave comments um i want to i want to rewind it a little bit so a couple things that stuck out to me in the first few minutes there when you started talking your mindset right we talk about you being a little boy you're like listen i'm gonna play in the nhl and that's it right and how how much power there is in that and how many times I've heard that story and from sometimes maybe the unlikely, you're not like the, you know, consensus number one pick overall saying, Hey, I'm going to Connor, Bedard being like, Hey, guess what, man, I'm going to play in the NHL one day. It's, it's kind of like a far off scenario. There's Derek Dorsett been on my show where there was teachers. Yeah, I remember a teacher in Swift current said like, said to me yeah i told derek dorsett last year that he wasn't going to play in the nhl and we had to kick him out of here because he melted me off and the teacher and then and we were talking about it on my podcast and all these years later you know he went on to play in the nhl and you talked about just the power of that belief 
and and what it, what we can do when we believe in ourselves. So that would that that's what stuck out to me. Um, the first thing, and then when you had to make the change, you know, you went you went from being the leading scorer in your midget team to all of a sudden, you know, coach being like, "Hey, man, if you can do that, you know, you're in." And I think anybody in that situation, you just want to do it, right? That's the dream. So walk me through, like as much as we just talked about, we love fighting, both of us, there's a place for it in a game. There's some hard things that come with that. Like doing that job is not for everybody and it's easy, right? Or it's not easy, sorry. And what was that transition like from for you at a young age when you started doing it? And then what was it like throughout you know, the course of your career as you got kind of into the NHL when you were younger and then having to do it when you're older, because there's always people coming for you, right? Always, always. And, uh, you know, for me, it was, uh, I, 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 I still, while I was scoring and, and being a, you know, a top player on my, you know, Bantam and junior players and, and getting letters and, and having teams interested in me, I was still getting in a couple fights. Cause we would get booted out of a Bantam game. Not like now where you get kicked out and go to jail and everything else under the sun. Um, <laughs> but we used to, we used to get pretty rowdy. So I, I had a little bit of experience with it. And then just whenever it happened, it happened. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of times in our lives as humans, and this is me speaking as a 46 year old, looking back on my life and maybe trying to make some sense of what I was trying to do then. But I just, I just surrendered and said, this is, this is it for me. This is where I'm going. This is what I'm supposed to do. This is it. Like, um, this is what it's going to take. So go get it. And the more that it happened, um, I was picked on a lot as a kid. I didn't have a whole lot of friends when I was young. Um, but I was always a decent hockey player. So it kept me in the groups. Um, but I, I was very lonely growing up, very, very lonely growing up. A lot of uh, dark moments from the time I was probably 11 to the time I was 14, just being alone at home and sad, really sad in my heart and soul. Um, and then when I started to kind of make something of myself as a hockey player, um, I started to get a different treatment. People looked at me differently. Now I'll, I was something, right? Then I made the Western Hockey League in my hometown where I'd played all my minor league hockey and my parents and my family and my sister and my aunts and uncles and everybody was from there. And I had two successful years there. I got drafted by the St. Louis Blues in the seventh round as a 19-year-old rookie in the Western Hockey League. Like, how often does that happen, you know? And then I break my tailbone in, in training camp and and I'm out for probably 12 to 14 weeks. And the Blues and the Warriors and Al Tour is my coach at the time. They're like, just keep him there. He's a late bloomer anyway. So I was an assistant captain. We had a great playoff run. And then I turned pro. And I was the kind of guy, like, when I turned pro, we had uh, Ottawa Center Dance, St. Louis Blues, and Worcester, Massachusetts. And I wasn't getting any ice time. And they sent me down to the East Coast League, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I was down for three games, had four points, came back up. They're like, oh, okay, it's two, you know, and then I couldn't get in that lineup. And I'm like, I really had fun down in back. I went into Greg Gilbert's office. I'm like, I had fun down in that league. You guys want to send me down there until you're ready to play me? Or maybe I can develop. But, like, I certainly don't just want to practice every day. And he was like, wow, I've never had a kid come in and ask because I was on a two-way contract. If they would even have tried to send me to East Coast, like, I could have rejected it, you know, which I would never would have because I wasn't that guy. But I was like, I just want to play the game. I'm going to go have fun. So I went down to Baton Rouge, Louisiana for, for three months, and it was the best thing that happened. A guy named Kevin McDonald was the player coach, and he grabbed me every single day after work because the Blues had talked to him, and it was like, grab this little chunky son of a gun and get his ass into shape. You know what I mean? And so I ended up getting into shape and I got back up and, and uh, 
you know, got to play and obviously was always fighting. And then my second year in the pro hockey, I was playing in Worcester. I had 40 some odd fights in 77 games, getting three shifts a game. And I was going out and getting into fights because I was so aggravated that I couldn't even get on the ice. And so I, Larry Plo is the general manager of the St. Louis Blues. Then, and I went back end of the year uh, meetings and I'm like, you know, if I can't even get three, this is my second year here. I can't even get three, five, three to five shifts a game. I'm like, how am I ever going to make the NHL? And Larry's like, Losey, it's real simple. You got to work on your skating. He's like, you got good hockey sense. You got a good mind about you, but you can't get to places fast enough. So I went back to Saskatchewan that summer and I hired Leanne Davies and skated with her five days a week, drove an hour and 45 minutes from Buffalo Pound, Saskatchewan to Regina. They, east side of Regina where Sherwood Arenas was and uh, skated with her for an hour and a half every day. And I made a commitment to that. And I came back to the St. Louis Blues that year. I was the last cut and I got to play my, maybe I was the last cut and I was upset because I wanted to make the team. Um, but that ne- that year, 99-2000 was maybe my favorite year of hockey. Uh, I played in Worcester. I had 12 goals, 18 assists, 20 fights, 225 penalty minutes, played on the second line, was on the power play, killed penalties on the defense. Like I got to do everything in the game of hockey that I loved all encapsulated in one year. And, and so it was unbelievable. And then the next year I made the NHL. And, you know, if you look at hockeyfights.com, I had nine fights in nine games, 17 fights in 26 games and 23 fights in 56 games that year. And I was like, Joel Quinville pulls me in the office after the seventh game. He's like, are you going to fight every single night? I'm like, do you want uh, uh, Pavel Dimitra to get a power play goal every night? He's like, yeah. I'm like, I'm probably not going to fight every night, but I'm ready to, just like he's ready to score power play goals. And Joel looked at me and he's like, I respect that, you know? And so um, I just moved through my hockey career and it was just who I was and and, and it, it just became about me. And, um, you know, I, when I broke my jaw, when Garrett Burnett snapped my face in half, that was 2005. Uh-huh. That was kind of the beginning of the end. Like that point in time, I was already 30 years old. I was kind of about, we had the lockout. I was kind of in between the minors and the NHL. And I'd already made, I'd already, I'd already kind of accomplished my goal. So from that point, it was time to just kind of take a look at what was after that. But fighting was always there. Whatever level was next, whatever they needed for me to do, that was just, I knew that nobody else could do it as good as I could, at, the, at least in the organization that I was in. But nobody was as willing, and it's the toughest job in hockey. And there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of sleepless nights where I'm just like, tomorrow's going to be a good day. And there was a lot of times it wasn't. <laughs> well, how how is it? And actually, before I go there, um, I just want to you know mention too. You mentioned Garrett Garrett Burnett. You know, it's a really sad story with what happened to him, and uh, he's from. Not my hometown, but the, the town next door, and um, you know, tragically took his own life uh, recently. And and yeah, I just want to just pause for a moment and just remember him. And yeah, just a, a terribly tragic tragic story there. They um, all are. They all yeah. are. Yeah. We actually uh, we have a uh, our pre HBA Chuck Thus and a um, few guys uh, um, that are, you know. Minor league guys mostly. There's a couple guys that played some NHL time. Um, Trevor Gillies and myself, and and uh, uh, we get on every other Wednesday and we talk about this. Um, you got to be, you got to play pro hockey to be on the call. We, I mentioned it one time, and everyone's like, "Can I get on? Can I get on?" But you had to have played some pro hockey, and 
And there's guys that aren't tough guys. There's guys that just have bad days. And so every other Wednesday we get on a conference call and we just talk about what's going on and that it's okay to not be okay. And, um, be a little bit vulnerable. I was telling you today, vulnerability is a superpower, not a weakness. Um, and just try and uh, find a way to, to have that brotherhood and that camaraderie. And, you know, we've watched too many of our brothers take their lives unnecessarily because they couldn't get past the hell that they were living in. And, you know, so if there's anything that we can do as teammates to the game of hockey and the guys that are around the game of hockey, you know, it's out there. So if you're a pro hockey player, and uh, you having a bad day and you need some help, uh, we'd love to actually, Brady, we'd love to have you on too, man. So um, we'll, we'll connect afterwards and, and, and go through the motions to make that happen. But um, it's a really cool, so sometimes we got six guys or sometimes we have 30 guys on there and it's awesome discussions and um, guys get real vulnerable and talk about some stuff. And it's a place where, you know, you can, it can be a safe place for you. And so it's something that I've really, truly enjoyed. Uh, Mike Segroy's on there, the absolute machine. He's still like absolutely jacked and bald head. I'm still scared of him to this day. I'm like, <laughs> just stop fighting, please. Uh, but Steve McIntyre has been on there a little bit. Cam Jansen came on a little bit. Yeah. So, and it's not, it's not something that's televised or orchestrated like this. This is just brothers being brothers. And so there is a place for guys that, you know, are pro hockey and have dealt with some bad times, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. There's nothing that, they can't keep you from it. I, I love to hear that. And I think that's, uh, it, it's so important to have that. And you mentioned, I just showed this picture vulnerability is strength. There's a whole new, you know, I'm promoting this, uh, big, you know, a lot, uh, through, through what I'm doing. And there, there, it is, you, you, I love what you mentioned. You said it earlier to me in a message, you're like vulnerability is a superpower. And I, I really like that. And it is because not only does it benefit us to be able to get that out, to get whatever it is out there, by us being vulnerable, especially as men, right? Especially as tough guys in as hockey players, um, it, it didn't always feel like that was the the right way to be, or that we could even be that. And oftentimes, I always say, like vulnerability is where healing begins, right? And so, if we can show people and be vulnerable and allow others to feel comfortable enough to do the same, like it's pretty powerful. Without question, and. Uh... I know the when I started to really heal myself a few years ago, it was learning how to forgive myself. I was really good at forgiving others around me, but um, 44 years of whatever doesn't even matter. Um, sometimes it can be something really little that you know you have regret or this, that, and the next thing for. But just over years, there starts to be corrosion that grows on that, right? And and it starts to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And so I just love them. I love to love the world. Um, you know, I've, I, 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 I was put on this world to be a servant and to serve the people. And, um, that's what I try and find in, in how I live and who I am. Um, and I was, a I wasn't, I was, I went through a really bad time for the last, you know, up until about two and a half years and still growing and, and grinding through it, still have bad days, but, um, there's some really, really tough times where I was close to the doing things that some of those other guys were, were attempting to do. And I maybe wasn't you know, using a pistol or, you know, a rope or anything else because I was, I was too scared to do that, but I was killing myself by a thousand slashes in another, in other ways. And um, learning that, that, that that was happening and continuing to grow in it and understand how I'm going to heal myself was extremely important. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that with us. And, and um, I know it's not always easy to talk about and, was going to ask you too, you know, the, the transition you're talking about a couple of years ago, but you've been 
retired since I think 2006 and you finished up in Norfolk. Did you finish up in Norfolk? Yep. yep. That's, what, that's where I played my few games before I got injured and went down the whole path. Just, I saw that and I was like, Oh, Norfolk. I was like, yeah, cool little, cool little spot there. Actually, <laughs> There's better, there's better Western hockey league dressing rooms than that place. Oh, there's so <laughs> the hot tub in the shower. And, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Um, but you leave the game in 2006 and, Again, this is something as hockey players, we all leave the game at some point. Very few get to do it on their own terms. You know, 1,500 games or 1,000 games and millions of dollars in the bank and records and Stanley Cups. And uh, you know what? Actually, I'm going to – I don't even need to play this last year, my contract. I'm just going to retire. Like, that doesn't happen too often. Usually, people are pushed out or, you know, they they bounce around. And it could be really challenging. So you talk about the struggle the last, you know, couple of years, that's, you know, retirement closer to, you know, 15, 16, 17 years ago now. What was that transition like for you leaving pro hockey? Um, I, you just said it, like, there's a lot of guys that, you know, squeeze the snap out of the stick and, and try and stick around too long. And I, and I didn't, um, I broke my jaw in 05, 06. Um, was out most of the year. We had the 0405 lockout. My hockey career was on the way out. They changed the rules with obstruction, and we're kind of backing off of that enforcer role more and more and more. And so when I signed with Chicago Blackhawks and played six games with them, I was there for probably 15. Then I got sent down to uh, Norfolk, which was a fun season because, you know, Adam Burrish and, and Bufflin and Crawford, like that whole crop of guys that won all those cups, like, I helped mentor those guys. I was their I was their older guy. I was the one that and I went down there with a good attitude. I could have gone down there with a bump on a log, but that's just not who I am. And I went down there and gave it my all. And they wanted to bring me back. They ended up moving to Rockford, Illinois the next year. And they wanted to bring me back and have me on their minor league team and help continue to mentor the guys. And I just kind of was at a point I didn't have edu education. Um, I didn't graduate from high school. Um at the time. And, uh, I was like, I, but there's, there's something more like I, I wanted to make the NHL. That was my goal. And I did it. And I had a really, really awesome career. One that not a lot of people get a chance to do, but to go try and fight back to do it again and to continue to beat the heck out of my brain was just something that I was not ready to do. And so I didn't have a job. I didn't really have any money. I just knew that I didn't want to do this. So my, again, Brad Devine had negotiated a one-way contract in uh philadelphia but i had to go to camp and earn it and riley cote was on his way to camp and there's a few other guys there and july 12 2007 i was just like i just don't think it's i just think it's time man i just think it's time and so i decided to hang him up and i didn't really tell anybody i didn't like send a letter to the nhl players association i called my dad which was the easy call um, because calling my agent, Brad Devine was probably the tougher one. He'd worked hard to get an opportunity for me in Philadelphia that year, but it just wasn't in my heart. And I'm glad because I was 31 years of age and I got out into the real world and I ended up finding a really good job at a company called Richie Brothers Auctioneers. And I was there for nine years and learned just a tremendous about a tremendous amount about life. And, you know, I was fortunate because some of the guys that do leave hockey, they don't get a family atmosphere to go back to. Um, like we have in hockey and at the and at the time and still to this day, the Ritchie Brothers family, they're a global publicly traded auction company and they're huge, huge in Canada. 
And uh, they were great to me. They welcomed me in. Um, they hired this guy that had no equipment knowledge or equipment sales, but they knew that I had a relationship skills and a personality that they could train. And so they brought me in, Nick Nicholson and Jesse Canton, um, and, you know, really gave me a lease on life. And, you know, all the stuff that I had to deal with over the last couple of years, it just all went into Dale Carnegie's day tight compartment, you know, like it just went there and it sat there and I never dealt with it um, until it came around and uh, again, and then I, you know, worked at another cat dealer and then I started to work with the blues alumni and then COVID hit. And that was really, you know, God's moment where he was going to say, okay, we need to really have a talk. And unfortunately that's not, it's going to be a little bit of a battle for you. Cause I'm going to, I'm going to put you to the test here. And, um, so it's been it's been interesting. It's been awesome. It's been a great last couple of years. And I, I, in St. Louis, we're so lucky. We've got just the best alumni ever. There's 45 guys that live here. We've got a 55 box seat at the arena. We got our own dressing room that, you know, we had the All-Star game here in 2020 or 2017. And all these uh, chapter presidents from the NHL are coming in going, what in the hell is going on here? And it's just Bobby Plager and building relationships in this town and Tom Stillman and the 17 owners of St. Louis Blues that are St. Louisans that bought it in 2012, wanted the Blues alumni and knew there was a presence of Blues alumni that were in the community and into hockey and all of those different types of things. And so I've been very lucky to have a lot of love and a lot of support, um, but it doesn't mean you don't go through your moments. Yeah, the hockey, <clears throat> excuse me, the hockey community, I mean, it's uh... – it, as we talk about, there's there's a lot that comes with with chasing the dream and, and pursuing the dream of being a hockey player, ups and downs, positives and negatives. But the community and the people that come into our lives because of it, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head earlier where you said, like, most people don't have that. And that's and that's been a really difficult thing for for me when I'm trying to help people you know, navigate something like recovery. If they're not a hockey player, I know how lucky I was that I had this seemingly endless amount of people who were there to, to lift me up when I, you know, decided that I needed some help and not everybody has that. And for, you know, for us that are in it, I know they're, you know, for me anyways, I'm so grateful. I didn't always feel that way. I took it for granted for the vast majority of my life, you know, just kind of like, oh yeah, I play hockey. I remember being <laughs> presenting, having to go to the rink, you know, boo-hoo, I'm playing hockey for a living, right? Until you get out into the real world and you're sitting on a roof or something or uh, trying to build a house and pretend like you know what you're doing and you have no idea what you're doing, getting rained on going, wasn't I just playing hockey a year or two ago? What the hell is this? And um and and yeah, and so I mean, it's just it's it's really difficult. But having that community uh, that we have in in hockey is it's been life saving for me. Do you mind if I pry a little bit more about like what yeah. that why that like what was going on with you? Like kind of the maybe some of your struggles. You don't have to get in. You can tell me as much or as little as you want. I just think you know, there's a lot of people that watch and listen to this show that that have their own struggles or currently or in recovery or you know that. I think it benefit from hearing, you know, the real rawness if you're willing to share it. And if not, that's okay too. Sorry yeah, to put you on the spot. I'll, uh, I, I was the one that told you that vulnerability is a superpower. So um, I, I don't have any, you know, there's a lot there. there it, it can be, it can be a challenging story because um, the stuff that I'm learning today and the stuff that I'm digging into 
about my childhood and some of the things that went on and how that develops you over time and forgivenesses and spirituality and all of the different things that come along with it, right? Um, they're, they're all there, but <clears throat> I don't know. I, <clears throat> I was, uh, uh, had went through a really tough divorce from 2014 to 2016 um, and probably lived six or eight years after that, even worse than the moments leading up to it. Um, fortunately, thanking my oldest son and, uh, and God, um, my ex-wife and I are actually getting along today and we, we've, we've come to resolve over the last eight months. And, you know, when I, when I take a look back at where I was and how I handled things and how I was dealing with things and how that retirement, I never, I never established and dealt with what was going on with myself inside of my own head through all those years. And then COVID just made it worse because I didn't, all three, the the two businesses that I owned and the job that I had completely wiped me out. I didn't have any income. I did. I was just hemorrhaging money, my savings, investments, everything's just going completely downhill. Um, but all of that is the best thing that's happened to me today because I don't look at money the same way. I don't look at myself or any kind of who I was the same way. Um, I, I've, I got myself into a spiritual light that is so healthy for me. Um, that is so good for me. Um, and again, I don't, I don't even go to church, let alone every day, but I, I just, I, I carved out a piece for me that was really important and it was the thought of Jesus and the fact that he was a healer and he was the most unconditional person and didn't matter how rude or mean to you or whatever you did, he was always love. And so I, adopted this part of me that was like, I want to be a little more like Jesus and I want to be a little less like me. And that was, that was everything that was under. It was nothing else. There was, you know, I, I wasn't even focused or worried about anything else that came along with that. And the more that I walked in that light, the more that I learned how to take the armor off of myself and be like, it's okay. If you take this armor off, these scars were all healed. Right. And then once they heal, you can be thankful for these scars because they help pave the way for you to be here and stand up and be like, it's okay to not be okay, man. It's okay. I wasn't not okay at one point, too. And so for me, having that understanding and having that realization of um, that I'm going to be fine and that I just need to love and love overcomes everything, 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 everything. And I even love when love's not facing facing me forward. So um I was an abusive father, um, not physically, but verbally. Um, and that was probably one of the hardest things that really brought me to my knees and trying to find out how to lose that because I was living at what I called eight. And it wasn't because I'm a mean person and I don't love my children, but I was verbally abusive to just about anybody that would come into pass with me if they would say something that I didn't feel or want or need in my life. And uh, I'll never forget it. Um, uh, it was about... It was I, I remember exactly what it was. It was, the, it was the second week in November, right before U.S. Thanksgiving. And I owned a hair salon at the time. And my oldest son was probably 17 and a half. My 11-year-old son was probably, he's 12 today. He was probably nine. And I'm putting a shelf together downstairs. And he's upstairs in the other room. And he is just losing his mind. My oldest son is on my, on my, my youngest son. And I was like, 
the normal person, that normal read would have went. And I had already gone into my, I want to be a little more like Jesus, a little less like me, right? Like, let's calm this thing down. Let's settle down. We don't have to get angry at every single thing, right? And that normal person would have went up there and I would have given him twice as what he gave him. And for the first time in my life, I just went, that's me. I'm teaching him how to do this. And I walked upstairs and I grabbed my oldest son and I gave him the biggest hug ever. And I apologized. And I said, I'm sorry. I taught you how to do this. And I said, I'm going to spend the rest of my life unteaching this to you and your brothers and your sister. And we're going to start to love and we're not going to get angry like this. And we're not going to act like this because this isn't who we are. And that was really one of the biggest defining moments in my life of how I had to heal. I cried the next week. Five gallon pails full, man. I literally couldn't stop. I literally couldn't stop crying. I almost couldn't even go to Thanksgiving dinners. Um, I was so hurt. Um, and you know, a couple of weeks later, you know, some more things happened, and and I've just started to kind of grow from there. You know. Um, so, yeah. Wow. That. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that. That's um, what a what a moment. Right. Like what a moment of, you know, kind of I, I don't do you call that a wait, like awakening. Like is that's a spiritual awakening for, you know, people have these these moments and we have these moments in our lives. And and just that I'm just picturing that moment where you have that realization and then also the accountability where you're like, that's that's me. Like I'm you know, I've taught this and, you know, I've certainly I'm a parent. Um, you know, there's been times in my life where, you know, I same thing. Right. Where you just that's how. You know, my dad wasn't a, a bad parent or whatever, but same thing, right? Like yelling, go to your room. There's, there's no there's no book they hand you when your parents say, this yeah. is everything you need to do. You have to learn from experience. And yeah. I think the, the, the number one thing that got me to be able to actually have that moment and not continuing going back to the well was the part when I released and I started to forgive myself. And I said, I need something other than human in my heart. And so I'm going to take... What I felt good. It's not for everybody. I'm not on your thing yeah. to promote yeah. or to preach it. But that that the 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 thought of Jesus being in my heart is one thousand percent helped heal me. And having God in my family story, without question, I've watched it change my children. I've watched my children's wa children watch me change. I've watched my relationship change with my ex wife. That doesn't happen unless you have something bigger than human in it. And understanding the spirit side and the flesh side is two things that I, I look for every single day today because there's two differences. We're not just a bunch of humans walking around on earth. There is a spirit somewhere that leads us. And again, not, not to get into a, a spiritual debate, but we are definitely in the midst of a spiritual warfare in this world without question. I do not disagree. I have not disagreed with anything you've said this entire podcast. And <laughs> kind of go back what you said, like, you know, I'm not, I don't go to church. I mean, I, I have, and there's different times where, you know, I'm not opposed to it or whatever. Like I think uh, underneath it all, even for people who don't believe, let's say people don't believe in God, if you could just, you know, treat people the way that you're supposed to treat people and you follow the, you know, the story guideline, you just good, you just should be a good person. And that is, is great. But I even talked about it on the last episode when I, I mean, I was down and out at so many different times in my life and it, you know, the was in jail or whatever. And I was just done, man. Like I literally hit my knees and, and very similar to what you're talking about. I don't even know where it came from. I have, you know, 
it just was like, this is what I need to do. And it's, and that's exactly what I did is open my heart to something greater than myself, just like that. And, you know, it didn't happen overnight. Like, it's not like I woke up the next day and my life was perfect. Two and a half years later, I'm still grinding, bro. (laughs) Exactly. And that, but it, but the, my grind now is not like the grind when I hit my knees, you know, three and a bit years ago. That, that moment for me was, I, I talk about it all the time. I, I actually just did my first testimonial speech at the Fellowship of Christian Athletes a couple of weeks ago. And uh, there's nothing like getting on stage in front of 250 people and completely exposing yourself like you feel like you're walked up there naked. Um, but I'm very vulnerable and very op- open and honest with my story because I want I want to help people. I want people to know that, um, you know, it's not about a religion. It's not about anything like that. But I, I, I there's been multiple times where, hardcore atheists have went out and tried to research Christianity and Jesus Christ himself and become devoted Christians. Like there's, there's just a plethora of them out there. You cannot, you, like I'm telling you right now, learning, understanding what the Holy spirit is and how it could come across you and truly releasing and, and having it come upon you is one of the most amazing things that I've ever had experienced in my life. And there's a lot of times it happens to us as people that we don't even know that it's happening to us. Um, but recognizing it and opening yourself and, and being like, listen, I, I don't, I don't want to control this as much anymore. Like I didn't realize how much of a control freak I was until I stepped back and looked at my dumb ass and, I, and I'm like, settle down, buddy. Would you like, just let it happen. And when I let the world unfold and the universe unfold in front of me, I start to see gifts, little yeah. things like just the littlest, smallest things. And I I've learned how to live in this wonderful world of gratitude and, spread love as much as I possibly can. It's the greatest feeling for me. And honestly, I tell people all the time, I feel a little bad because it's kind of selfish. Like I feel really good when I spread love. So I'm doing it kind of for me too, you know? Yeah, dude, I'm the, I'm the exact same way. And that that's the C like, I really believe that's one of the secrets to life is, is being of service, right? Like I really truly believe. And for people that don't feel that like when you don't when you spread love or you serve or you do something kind for somebody without any expectation of expecting anything in in return like for us we talk about that like that's the to me like the greatest feeling and i remember being even a kid feeling that way for anybody that doesn't light that your soul doesn't light up when you're in a, a place of service like i actually feel bad for those people because it truly is such an incredible feeling and yeah it is maybe sometimes a little bit selfish but it's always with it's i I never go into it thinking like hey this is going to make me feel good it's always let's make other people feel good and the residual is hey you see them you've done something they feel good that feels pretty good here and it it can be in for lack of better term selfish but i mean it there's it's it's the secret like it it truly is freeing when when we can live in a place of of love and compassion and kindness and not just so like me 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 what can you do for me what can you do for me what can you do for me and uh yeah i don't know like it there i i believe it's just a simple simple as that but it's the secret to uh to you know finding gratitude and, and happiness i really believe unconditional love is uh is one of the greatest things that i've ever accepted into my life um it's just, it's awesome, man. And um, I, I, I'm, I'm fortunate enough. You were talking about a little earlier. I do auctions, charity auctions for a living now. Um, 
we did a thing, uh, amazing moment last Saturday night. And, and again, uh, the goodness of God, I don't even want to take credit for this because this was so off the charts. It's not even funny, but Children's, uh, or sorry, Cardinal Glennon Hospital here in St. Louis, Missouri has a fundraiser every year and two or not, not this year, but last year they brought bad Brad Paisley in, had a fund in need, had a private concert, sold tickets, sold big packages, made a bunch of money. They did five hundred and fifty thousand dollars in in the paddle race this year. The goal was six hundred and twenty five. Uh, I got up on stage and told a little story about my nephew who has pulmonary heart condition and has actually been um, had both his open heart surgeries at five days and eight months old at Cardinal Glennon, and just told the story and and just told him how. You know, this isn't just a hospital. This is a place where God provides miracles to families to give their kids back to them. And uh, we raised $1.3 million. Wow. I was, I was absolutely blown away. Got to give the horn for that. That's, in, yeah. that's, in, that's incredible. Um, that, an outpouring of generosity from people that I never expected. I'm like, hey, I like, let's make the stretch goal 750 when we're in our meetings, right? They're like, man, if we get 750, we'll be ecstatic. <laughs> $1.3 million. I don't even know where it was raining down. It was unbelievable. Wow. What's that? What's that like? Because you talk about what well, we didn't really talk about, but we got to, you know, it's no secret the adrenaline rush that comes when you're fighting in front of 20,000 fans and then you're used to that and you remove that and you don't have that anymore, that could be pretty tough. But I got to imagine like being an auctioneer, like maybe I'm not trying to compare it to fighting in the NHL, but there's got to be some sort of level of excitement. And you're kind of like, you get that same sort of feeling where people are kind of like loud and cheering you on and you're the center and all that. So like, does that been like maybe a little bit helpful being, you know, in that environment? I think so. Yeah. And I think that, uh, it was, I was starting to lead up to a little bit and doing more and more and more. Like, so first I'm, I'm a third generation auctioneer. So my dad and my grandfather, oh, okay. my uncle, all are, were auctioneers back, even though my dad and my uncle are more real estate agents today than they are auctioneers. And obviously my grandfather's passed away a long time ago, but um, I, so as soon as I got out of hockey, I got it, uh, got into Ritchie brothers. And so when I was there, I had to learn how to catch bids. So when it was on 27, five and I was like, yep. And then he went to 3000 and then he came back to 3250. I knew that I had to ask the guy for more. And so I learned my pendulum. I ended up becoming a level four auction, uh, a bid catcher. And I was teaching other bid catchers and I was a regional Midwest regional manager for two sales sites. And I'd really moved my way up in the company. Um, and then I started to do it for charities and I just did it for fun, you know, no big deal. And then people are like, dude, like you're really good. Like you need to do this for a living. And I'm like, you think? And so COVID happened and then the event, I was doing a bunch of them then. And then, um, and then it came out and people started calling me. And so I kind of came up with a little bit of a, how I can charge. And, you know, I just look at it like I can either go get a real job and help a few people, or I can do this for a living. I feel like I add value, right? Like almost yeah. twice as the year before. And I take a, 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 a 0.00% of that number, but I take very little just to, and up to, you know, feed my family and, and whatever else. And, um, so it keeps me a little bit prevalent in the game. Um, it keeps my name out there. I do some radio stuff too, just to have some fun. And um, again, I'm I'm serving I'm serving people, right? All these charities, they're all going the 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 benefits going to someone else. Uh, we do a lot of get them to as many hockey games as we can and stuff like that. So um, yeah, it's a it's a huge part of my life. It's something that I will do forever. 
And uh, I absolutely love it. When I'm up on there, man, up on that stage, chanting and getting after it. And there's some comedic aspects I try and bring. Like I'll be in the middle of my chant and I'll start telling a guy how cheap he is. Are you spilled more tonight than this? Come on. And everyone starts laughing and we start to engage the crowd. And the second you start to engage that crowd, the more money you see, it just comes. It just happens. And uh, so I just, again, I had a special gift God laid on me, not only to, um, make the NHL and, and have an opportunity to like live my dreams out. But even though there were some tough times on the backside of that in between this, I really feel like I'm in a position to be out there and hopefully make the world a little bit better place. I have no doubt in my mind that you are. Um, are you, you coach too, right? Is this, you're coaching some hockey uh, or, or something there in the, in the three or something? So, yeah, I, I'm the development coach, so I don't get to all the – like I have my kids in the weekend, so I can't make it to many of the trips. Uh, but I uh, I coach the kids during the week. You know, the kids that aren't in high school, either in the morning or the afternoon, we'll get out. We'll just work on some fundamentals, some skills. And I just love the kids, man. I love to be a part of it. And, and I'm a Tier 2 player, right, Tier 3 player. Like, this is how I came up. And for them – for me to be able to tell them the stories, like, listen – and I will tell this to anybody that's listening and anybody that will listen to this. You can do anything you want. If you put the time, energy, effort, and belief in it, there is nothing in this world that's not accomplishable. Nothing. But you got to commit to it. And um, so are you willing to or are you not? What do you want? You just want a little D3 scholarship? You just want to go play some junior hockey and then you know go get a job? Whatever it is, I'm here for all of you. Um, but I love coaching. I'm, I'm, I don't love being a hockey coach where I'm like, yeah, lines and all of that stuff and all the time and energy. I just love teaching kids and developing kids. And, and, and I didn't know if I, I don't think I mentioned this earlier, but my dad taught me three things as a kid that really, in my opinion, helped me make the NHL. Number one, be a great teammate. Number two, be coachable. And number three, I'll work the guy next to you. Those are literally the only three things we have that we have control of. So if we mastermind those and create just the best experience inside of those, um, you're going to win because everybody loves a good teammate. Everybody loves somebody that's coachable and everybody loves somebody that works hard. Right. So just go focus your energies on that. Stop worrying about ice time. Stop worrying about what line you're on. Stop worrying about anything else. Worrying about how much time you spent in the gym. Worry about how much, how many times you've seen a teammate that's not feeling good or kind of down on his luck. And you went over and give him a hug, tell him you love him and, and say, it's going to be okay. You know, like those are the types of things. Right. And when I do my development classes, I do private lessons with some kids in the summer times too. I tell the parents, listen, I'm not trying to create great hockey players. I'm trying to help grow great humans. If we get great hockey players, thumbs up. But it's our we have the ability to have all of these kids be great humans because they're the next generation that has to try and fix whatever the hell's going on out there right now. <laughs> Dude, I, I love everything you're saying. We have so much the, the same views on things and everything. If you look at this, this is my training page. I don't know if you read it. It says building great hockey players, even better humans. And if everybody would just have that philosophy. And unfortunately, in hockey, we don't always see that. And you know, I don't know how you guys do it down there in St. Louis now. But up here, and this is just kind of off topic, we'll talk a little bit about hockey and parents and that stuff, if you don't mind, for a few yep. minutes here. They're now doing tryouts. Like, right now, I have kids that are in tryouts. Like, snap. now. 
I'm going to snap. Like, like they just ended their season two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and now they're in tryouts like now. And for so many reasons, it pisses me off. Like, how about the kids that are going to grow over summer and, and develop? The kids over- that are, are, are finally going to go decide to get in the gym and, and make a difference in their life. And they need this summer. You know, it's the most ridiculous thing. I they Listen, I love St. Louis for a lot of reasons, but I am not happy with our hockey community. Um, we have two AAA teams, and now there's another team that's trying to get in there too. Listen, we don't have enough. We have 2.7 million in the greater area. We do not have enough for one for two AAA teams. It's because parents and adults can't get along that we have that. If we were truly doing what's best for the kids, we would have one AAA club, and we would have three basically Central States teams, and then we would have AA underneath that and AA underneath that, and yeah. and, and and all the all the levels that go down. But it's not about that. It's about get. It's about being right, not getting it right. And that is the complete opposite. I'm about getting it right, not being right. And if I am wrong 100% of the time and we win, let's go. Yeah. It's bullshit. Yeah. yeah I, I yeah. I, that on here or not. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, you can say whatever, dude. I am <laughs> the executive producer, the host, the, uh, the audio guy, the video guy, the censorship guy. You can say whatever the hell you want on this show, man. It's all you should have heard what I sounded like on the show when I first started. I listened to a few of my old episodes uh not too long ago, and holy hell do I sound rough. Every third word was an F-bomb. I'm like, oh my God, like which is fine, I guess, but like it was a little bit overkill. I'm a little more kid coming, but I still drop drop the old F-bomb on this show. So you can say whatever you want. My mom's probably listening, so. Well, then we'll keep it. He's always like, Reed, you, you don't sound as good when you say that word. <laughs> I'm like, Mom, seriously? <laughs> yeah, Mom's no best, maybe, though, right? I mean, I, I'm still trying to figure that out at 30. I get a good one. Like, so almost. I'm, I'm happy. Um, yeah, but this whole thing, man, this um, the way that hockey is and these kids, man, the, the way they're being treated at such a young age now, it worries me. Ten-year-olds. Flying around the country playing AAA hockey, like you've got to be kidding me! You've no. got to be kidding me! These programs in Toronto and Chicago and everybody, I, do you know? Like, if if people there really look at the stats of what a kid even making junior hockey, then some level of college, then Division One college, then the minor leagues, then the AHL. And then the National Hockey League, like what the percentage of their kid actually doing that is and how crazy they are about spending $20,000 a year for their kid to play hockey. I just, it's, it's absolutely baffling to me. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, it's the root of all evil. It's Satan's currency. It's all about money. And there's somebody on the backside of that that's winning and they're promoting it and it's okay. And so it is what it is, and I'm not. I'm not going to sit here and say that we shouldn't have high levels of hockey. I'm not saying that that we don't have extra competitive leagues for the gifted. I don't, you know. But when you start to spread it out and say, "Well, we had 75 kids at this AAA camp. Maybe we should have two teams, so that you can actually just really make more money, and mm-hmm. those kids are actually going to play at a level." Like part of the thing that I really feel in my hockey career that was so special for me was I was I there wasn't I didn't play on that team. So I was gonna be one of the worst players on the top team. I was gonna be one of the best players on the second team. 
I got to learn how to be a leader. I got ice time. I was scoring goals. I had confidence. And then whenever it came out in the right way, it was supposed to happen and I was there. And so I just think that, uh, you know, a lot of parents and people out there that are listening to this, like, well, you're just a tough guy anyways. And it's like, okay, yeah, um, maybe, sort of, but not really. You know, like there's not very many guys that played the National Hockey League after 2000 that were tough guys that were really good hockey players and had some significant junior and minor league scoring totals. Yeah. Hundred so, percent. You, if you, you, know, if, you well, if Keith Kachuk got six minutes of ice a night, he wouldn't have scored forty goals either. <laughs> yeah, no, I, you know, even in the even in the nineties, man, like late nineties, there, you know, if you were if you were playing in the NHL at all, you could skate, you could play, and yeah. that's what people. Unless you've been there, just shut your mouth, like seriously, <laughs> man. Like all these people, I just, I, it's the non hockey people that I, I just, I try not to let it bug me anymore. But like these, if you don't know, like just don't speak on it. I wouldn't come to your job if you're a expert in something and and try to tell you what to do. Actually, no, Mister Engineer. I think you better let me build this bridge across the river today. Like it, you know what I mean? Like I just, I would shut up. I would be like, okay, yeah. I would ask questions. Yeah, ask questions. Yeah, ask questions, and I would listen to the experts that actually been there and know what they're talking about. Yeah, but it, it this whole thing with the kids, it's sad for me because they're being treated like pros, right? At nine, ten years old, and so much is put on the the emphasis of them being a hockey player. And like you and I both know, our identities were as a hockey player. You talked about that identity and how it shaped your life. Like all of a sudden, you're part of, and you you feel like you're somebody and you're worth something because of this you know, all of a sudden you're good at hockey, but now you have these 10 year olds that, you know, they're being told every single one of them is told they're the next Connor McDavid now. And, you know, there's this whole, uh, you know, how many of those 10 year olds, like you said, are going to go on to play, but how, not many, you know, so much changes for one from 10 to 16 to 20 to 30, but all of them are going to be like, there's going to be a, an end somewhere where it's going to be so devastating. And that's all these kids have done and they have no childhood experience outside of hockey. Uh, That's all they know. They don't play any other sports. They don't have any friends outside of hockey. They don't, you know, have the, a childhood at all i got kids coming to my skates and they're like oh i was on the ice this morning and then i had this and then i had this this is my fourth ice time today and i'm like well no it's not because you're going home (laughs) keep your money and and you're not coming on the ice with me it's happened like quite a few times i'm like too much like uncle like you're done here take a break so what about like what about these what would you say to parents right now like do, do you think these kids should be taking a break for for a little bit here like in the off season I totally do. And I and listen, I do lessons, private lessons weekly where I think it's okay for a kid to get on the ice and we have fun and we, you know, do our things. Um, but they have to be doing something else. It, hockey can't be their full-time mindset, especially at ages eight through 14. When you start to get to 15, 16, 17, and you're starting to have a focus, listen, the NHL and junior hockey and pro hockey is a full-time job. Yeah. Um, so you got your training and you got your whatever, but I just don't think kids should be on the ice six, five, you know, three to five times a day year round. (laughs) You want to keep yourself rusty. You want to learn some new skills. I do a lot of fundamental stuff. So it's not a lot of like small groups, three, four, five, six kids. You know, we're working on being good teammates. We're working on being coachable and we're working on like our tight turns and stopping and the real fundamental of how to take a good wrist shot 
Um, and so I think that that stuff's kind of important, but um, I just feel like I, I, again, it's not, it's, it's, it's not the shell of everything that's going on for me. It's more like, stop looking at your child. Like he's a lottery ticket. Yeah. She's not, she's not. Well, for, certainly she's not because the girls really only have an opportunity to go play. But like when it comes to the boys, like everybody wants a the kid, they got their favorite player, you know, and then they want their kid to be an NHL or, and then he starts to succeed. And then they're like, I'm like, no TV timeout. You can't do this. You yeah. can't do this to these children. Yeah. And, and the parents are doing it to themselves as well. There's parents here that have called me that are literally suicidal because they're so in debt and they've financed everything and their credit cards are maxed out and they've had to sell their house and they're, you know, the kids are 13 and 14 and they're paying for all this extra training and they got to go play on this team and they're trying to go here and do this. And and the sisters are completely falling off because they're getting no attention. They're not getting any financial fun and love for any of the sports that they do because mom and dad are so wired up about whether or not their kids on the triple A team. Again, it's not everybody, but there is some people out there that really need to take a long, hard look at where they're at, what they're doing and if it's right. And again, your kid is going to be just fine. I, I tell people all the time, it doesn't matter how much hockey you play. Anything that happens, if you're supposed to make that trek, you're going to make that trek. It, the only guys that make the NHL are guys that have it deep down in their soul. And there is no amount of teaching. There's no amount of training. There's no amount of uh, AAA hockey that's going to provide that source of energy inside of a young kid's body like I had. I'm going to find a way. Because I knew that I that there was nothing that was going to get in my way. I made a commitment at a very, very young age. Now, I had to go a different route. And if I would have worked out a little bit harder, maybe I would have been a little bit better. If I'd have been a better, better student, I would have got that full ride to the University of North Dakota. And I might have been able to go become a better hockey player, get some muscle on, and come out at 22 and been a little bit different, right? But those are hindsight. doesn't matter. The fact of the matter was it didn't matter. I was getting there and somebody needed to get the hell out of my way. And, yeah. and that, that is what's inside of the kid, not what mom and dad are trying to do or how mom and dad are trying to tell him or yelling at him on the way home. Cause he didn't get that hat trick going. It's going to hurt him making the team next year. Shut <laughs> up. Yeah, no doubt. It's uh, yeah. Seriously. Parents don't, don't even talk to your kid about the game after the game. Like it, it unless it's awesome. yeah, of course. My oldest son, uh, and and he he got the brunt of most of my lessons. Thank God we're best friends. He's the best kid in the world, Connor. Um, he's 10, 11 years old, and this is how great my dad is. I'm watching Connor play. He's like playing B hockey. Like it's not even anything great, right? And uh, it's not on the AAA team. It's none of that stuff. And I look at my dad, and I'm like, God dang. How can I get that kid to drive the net better? My dad looks at him. He's like, I just tell him he ties the skates good. I look at my dad. I'm like, how in the hell is telling him he ties the skates good get him to going to get him to drive the net better? He's like, it's not. It's going to stop talking about how he needs to drive to the net better. And I was like, <laughs> oh, light bulb. I get it. Shut up, dad. And that was the moment where I was like, oh, 
I need to be a little more like you too. Yeah. I've, I've had a couple of those moments with my dad now too, all these years later, but that's a, that's awesome. Um, thanks. Thanks for sharing all the, the great stories, man. I, we're going to have to do this again sometime for sure. Before, before I let you go, who you got winning the stand, who you got winning the cup? Well, I don't know. Uh, we had some pretty big knockoffs this last couple of days. Right? <laughs> great for the game of hockey. Great for hockey fans. You know, obviously great for the Florida Panthers. Uh, I think there was a lot of people down there that were wondering whether this uh, Matthew Kachuk signing was it. But I tell people all the time, he is uh, the best all-around hockey player in the National Hockey League. He brings everything. He'll fight. He'll agitate. He's got ridiculous hands. His goals are all highlight. He works hard. He stops on pucks. He he finds puck battles. He gets in front of the net. That goal maybe doesn't get scored right last night if he doesn't if he isn't screening the goaltender. Goaltender got big, couldn't see it. It just went above his shoulder. If he wasn't standing in front of the net, the goaltender could have got up a little bit higher and maybe made the save. Right. Um, so not that I'm like picking Florida, but, uh, you know, they've got a high dollar goalie in the, in the net and Bobby. Um, so if he decides to get hot, you never know. Um, listen, Seattle looked good. Dallas looks good. Yeah, I like uh, Dallas. There's, there's a, there's some, there's some good teams out there, but, uh, I know one thing, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm going to be tuning in because there's some, there's some hockey that you weren't expecting to be watched here in the second round. That's for sure. Absolutely. And I really, you know, I like the uh, the idea of an all-Canadian final. Seeing Edmonton, Toronto would be great. Yeah. But I picked Dallas before the playoffs started, so I'm going to ride them as long as they're in. There's something about them. I just, they were there a couple of years ago. They were right there. And uh, they got a, they got some some core older guys that I think could, could be the different difference makers down the stretch. I mean, the top teams, like, they're out, right? Like, the Colorado, Boston. I mean, anyone's, they're all good. Let's be honest, right? Listen, Boston ran into some inexperienced goaltending. That's going to happen. Um, you can't ever predict that. Um, they ran into a team that just wasn't willing to say no. I'll, t I'll say this to everybody out there. I know uh, Ryan O'Reilly, and I watched that guy play for the last few years. I watched him lead his team to a Stanley Cup, and I really feel like he was instrumental in them getting through this last series. That guy is, uh, you know, similar. Uh, I don't think he has the top-end skill that a Matthew Kachuk has. He certainly doesn't have the legs anymore because of his age. But when it comes to battling and just pure on-ice leadership, I'm going to do it with my actions and not my mouth. This guy is one of the best dudes ever. Um, he's such a huge part of the St. Louis uh, uh, community. He's such a good guy. He's so humble. Um, I, 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 I'm – there, I'd be lying if there wasn't a little part of me. I know there's a lot of Toronto Maple Leaf fans across Canada that have been singing the blues since 1962 or 63 or whenever that's been since they've won. But I wouldn't be unhappy if Ryan O'Reilly came back uh, next year with the Toronto Maple Leaf Stanley Cup ring. I love, I love that. And 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 once again, I'm going to agree with you. For the game of hockey and for the province of Ontario. Oh. And 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 just the country of Canada. I think it would be really great to see the Toronto Maple Leafs win. And I've lived in Ontario for the last five years, and it's the same shit every year. Uh, I can't take one more year of these people, you know, saying I'm never cheering again. I'm never this. And I've only been here five years, and they haven't won since 1967. So I can only imagine what the like the people that have been living here even longer. So for 
please, you know, for everyone's sake here, it would be really great for, for the game of hockey. But you know, uh, good swap off there. The Dallas Cowboys of the United States and the Toronto Maple Leafs of Canada. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Not quite as long, but they expect to win championships here and down in Dallas, and they just aren't doing it when the when it comes to the Cowgirls. So that's that's right. Well, I'd love to do this again sometime. Thank Anytime, you so brother. much. Thank you so much for sharing sharing the time and uh, look forward to doing it again. And uh, would love to hop in on some of those meetings and I'd love to see get you a puck support hat or something. Yeah, yeah you. appreciate it. Okay, buddy, thanks again for your time. Talk to you soon. Oh. That is Reload. Thank you, Lozy. That was awesome. Great chat, great stories, sharing uh, parts of his life with us. So thank you so much. For that, I'm going to spend a few moments here wrapping up the show. Thank you to everybody who joined the show live. Pretty quiet in the comments section tonight, but we had uh, quite a few people joining through Facebook and YouTube. If you're watching on Facebook, if you could please head over to the YouTube channel, subscribe on YouTube. That's where I'm trying to do it. Eventually, we're going to be off Facebook completely. So please subscribe to the YouTube channel. If you're watching on either one of those, which you are, if you could press like, share, subscribe on YouTube, turn on notifications. Be greatly, greatly, greatly appreciated. Thank you to Jackie Harner watching saying, I love this. Also saying, I need to learn to slow down. Take a break. I like skateboarding, hockey, our cats, etc. Trying new stuff makes me happy. I'm 30 already. I just try to have fun. I want Seattle. I like the underdogs. I also like the underdogs. Thanks for watching, Jackie. Darren Bruff. Actually, Darren, your, your name came up today. I don't know if you're still watching, but your name came up today in a Muskoka hockey meeting. So I'm going to be reaching out to you here in the near future. It's actually going to text you. Will tonight. Be back here with a a few final thoughts. Quick message from our friend Doug McLean. A hat. This This was given to me by Brady Lebo, who started this group called Puck Support. And I'll tell you what, it's a great organization. Brady sent me this. Uh, That's awesome. I've been on Brady's show. Brady uh, is a kid that played uh, major junior hockey, was with the uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning for a short time, had had, uh, some major drug challenges in his young career, and he's taken this upon himself to help families who who have had challenges and lost, lost young players because of mental health. This hat I have on has a logo on the inside of it with Todd... Hewan's name on it. Todd played for me in St. Yeah. Louis, and he That's had, right. you know, obviously we lost Todd a number of years ago. This t shirt has, oh my God, Bob Probert's name on the inside of it. And that's what they do with all the things. So look, if you can check it out. Thank you, Doug McLean, friend of the show, been on the show twice. And guess what? Doug has a new book coming out in October. He's going to be back here to talk about his book come October. Please check out Puck Support on social media. 
at Puck Support, PuckSupport.com. Use promo code BELIEVE, B-L-E-A-V, all one word. It's going to save you 20% off your order for the month of May 2023. Get yourself a mental health over hockey shirt. Help create powerful conversations surrounding these often difficult topics to, to discuss. We have the power as people to change the world. I'll tell you how many, I can't tell you, sorry, how many messages I've received where it's like, Brady, I was wearing my mental health over hockey shirt tonight, or my pain is real, but so is hope, or my puck addiction, or my puck the stigma, or my vulnerability is strength shirt. And I was at the rink and I was watching my son or my daughter, and usually me and the other parents were complaining about the coach or talking about, you know, other stuff that isn't helpful. And I wore this shirt tonight and guess what? It created a a conversation. I found out that another parent on the other team struggles with mental illness and so do I, or another parent's in recovery and so am I. And we had uh, just a, a great conversation and now we're friends on a different level. It's happening everywhere. We have thousands of people wearing puck support. So thank you to everybody who has ordered It is a really small operation. It is myself and Susan Cook, and that's that's it. It's just us, but we're getting it done. Susan's been working hard in the shop. I've taken a little hiatus from from the heat press, but I'm still running all the social media and website and all that kind of stuff. But Susan's been working hard, so Susan deserves a big shout out as well. Check it out, pucksupport.com. While I'm on the topic, I got to say thank you to Dave Gilmore. I know he's been having some health issues as of late, and he is very much responsible for helping Puck Support start back in December of 2020 when he sent me the money after his fundraiser on his 70th birthday. Without that money, there would be no heat press. There would be no PuckSupport.com. I don't know where I would be with puck support currently if it wasn't for Dave Gilmore and furthermore, Susan Cook, who is, you know, allowed it to really take over her entire basement where I am right now. Not only is my podcast studio here, the entire puck support headquarters is here. And uh, yeah, we're just super grateful to everyone who's ordered. I've seen it. I read it all the time. The power that it's, it's having in hockey rinks, in schools, at places of business, Trevor Stockton watching says, Hey Brady, was able to catch the beginning and the end of tonight's show. Can't wait to check out the middle. Great show as always. Thank you, Trevor. Jackie back in the comments section. Do y'all ship to the USA? I love your stuff. I have purple and green skate laces on both of my skates. I love that. Thank you for that. I take a lot of flack actually for having purple and green laces. It's a big no-no in the hockey world. I would never have colored laces. But when I tell people why, they're like, oh, I get the pass. Even with, you know, the pro guys who, you know, it's white laces all the time. And I used to be like that. I was like, I'll never have anything but white laces in my skates. Now I have one purple on the left, one green on the right to honor all those hockey players that have passed away by suicide or overdose in the hockey community. And this picture I'm going to post is a very old picture. And there's at least double the amount of hockey players 
in our database that are not in this picture. Each one of them is honored and remembered here at Puck Support. If you look at the inside of my hat, the inside of my shirt, There's a name of a hockey player that's passed away. Clay Plume, I played against him in the Western Hockey League. He was a Lethbridge Hurricane, sadly passed away of an overdose in 2021. There's over a, a hundred hockey players in the database. One is too many, a hundred is unacceptable. I always say that it's not a hockey problem but it's our responsibility as people in this community, just as people in general, to be a part of the solution. We can all do our part. We don't have to be doctors or counselors or have the answers. Sometimes you just have to be there. Sometimes you just have to listen. Sometimes you just have to show kindness. If you can find the strength to be vulnerable, I truly believe that's where healing begins for ourselves and for people collectively. I think of just my story. You know, I, I found the strength to, to be vulnerable and I shared with one person my trauma from childhood. From there, I was able to tell some more people, eventually, you know, starting this podcast and doing some things on social media and very early on within hours i think of launching the first episode of this podcast i was getting messages of people who were telling me that they were struggling or had been abused or were in addiction or were in recovery sometimes oftentimes it started with Hey Brady, I don't know why I'm telling you this. I've never shared this with anybody before, but, and then he or she would tell me some, something they've never told anybody, oftentimes relating to sexual abuse or drug use. So by the, pow the power of me being vulnerable and sharing my story showed others that it's okay to be not okay and it's okay to ask for help, that it's okay that we go through those things, that we're not alone. So if you're out there and you're struggling, one, I am advocating, I am strongly encouraging you to just know that you're strong enough to be vulnerable. You have the strength. Allow yourself to find and begin to heal. And by doing that, we can inspire others to do the same. We don't have to be quiet or ashamed of our struggles. We can recover and we should recover out loud to show people that it can be done. I think it's so, so, so important that we do that. I promise you, if I can do it, you can do it. We're going to be back here next week with Tanner Mortensen, former SJHL Junior A hockey player 
who has recently started to share his story through TikTok and Instagram. Tanner's become a butt of mine. He's out there doing speaking events to hockey teams as well. We're going to hear from Tanner next Monday night. I really want to get Jenna on the show too. She's upstairs, I think, right now. But we're going to get her on here to share her story at some point, I think, as well. So I'm excited for that. Sorry to put you on the spot there, Jenna. Jesse Tucker in the house. What's up, buddy? It's been too long. Hope you're doing well. I mentioned earlier that I was at the Canadian International Hockey Academy. Once again, thank you to all the staff and players for opening the doors with open arms. I can't wait to come back. It sounds like I'm going to be back up there again at the end of summer, which I'm really looking forward to. I do not take it lightly when I have the opportunity to speak to a group, whether it's hockey players or a business. I do not take it lightly. I am so grateful that I'm able to do what I'm doing in my life through this podcast, through speaking events, through coaching. I am so, so, so grateful. I know it's making an impact and that's not easy for me to say because I don't like to give myself credit. But I know that it's making an impact. I just from the feedback that I that I get, and it just reminds me that I need to keep going. If anybody wants or would like me to come to your community to do some coaching and speaking, I really like to mix the both, getting on the ice, mix them both. I like to get on the ice and then speak. Please email Jenna at pucksupport.com. She will help coordinate and uh, and plan the events. Don't forget to check out Puck Support, pucksupport.com. We are in Windsor this weekend for the Noah's House Charity Gala in honor of Noah Butcher Hagel, a young hockey player who sadly took his own life. It's a 20s gala. Tickets are still available. Please Google Noah's House in Windsor, Ontario. It's going to be an unbelievably fun night dancing, 1920s theme. I got to get my 1920s gangster costume going. Come out, support a great cause if you can. Looking forward to that. If you're looking for training, doesn't matter where you're from, AAA, U14, U18, or young, Division I, or pro guys, NHL, doesn't matter. We have a group for you, Muskoka Hockey. Check out muskokahockey.ca. Two of the best skill coaches in the entire world are going to be here. Hockey Hall of Famer Adam Oates and the head of skill development for the Montreal Canadiens, Adam Nicholas. I'm going to be uh, on the ice helping them out, but also running uh, ice uh, for, for groups as well, including the NHL guys. There's going to be guest spots from NHL superstars. Muskoka is now the place to come to to train, not just on the ice, but off the ice. MuskokaHockey.ca. Go check it out. Make sure you're following at Muskoka Hockey on Instagram and soon to be TikTok. That's my summer this summer, Muskoka Hockey. I am so thrilled to be back with them. Spearheaded by Sam Gagne, currently of the Winnipeg Jets. Telling you, come travel to Muskoka. Come take part in Muskoka Hockey. We'll see you all next Monday night with Tanner Mortensen. Until then, be kind, find gratitude, and as always, have a great day if you so choose. Actually, I'm going to tell one quick story. I was in a meeting today, and 
with Sam and the people at Muskoka Hockey. Kill the music for this one, and then I'll sign off. And uh, Sam said, yeah, today I dropped my son off at school. And I, I told him, I said, have a great day if you so choose. And his son looked at him and said, what does that even mean? And uh, Gag said, you know, it took me a while to explain it to him. Uh, but I think eventually he got it. So I'm going to make a, I'm probably going to make a story or a reel out of it. If somebody can explain what that means, you know, I think we should make a contest for that. Explain in, in the best, you know, I don't know the best way to explain, have a great day. If you so choose, how would you tell that to a, you know, a seven-year-old? I would love to hear it. Anyways, we'll see you guys all next Monday. Was my life rookie of the year? Swift as a Bronco, they stuff in my gear. Past the pain, went insane, yearning for that buzz. Twelve year journey through the depths of hell. Criminal fentanyl, I struggled, I fell. Abused, confused, as a shadow of who I once was. Can't stay restless, sweet. Oh, no, not a thrill of me. I need to get my life gear back on track. Used to toe drag them like Wayne Gretzky. And now I'm toe tagging homeless on Hastings. Intervenous drugs weren't in the gang notes. Wrong kind of how to ride the lightning. Sideboard ignoring hot and frightened. Hockey to hell and back with my recovery road. Can't sleep, restless week. Up all night, a dread on a beat. I need to get my life here back on track. Emotions drained, I can't stop crying. Send my reflection, no sense lying. My inspiration's hard to get a killing back.